The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. It's been a big year in international measurement. A number of the big measures we rely on every day, and for the accurate use of more things in our lives than you might imagine, have swapped out, or are in the process of doing so. The kilo is a famous measure kept under glass and lock and key in France that's changing from an actual lump of metal to being kept by quantum measurements based off fundamental laws of physics so as not to change. It turns out that up to now, every now and again the kilo mass shifted, and so would all measurements. Kind of bananas to think about it. It's also been a big anniversary for another standard, standard time. Did you know, and I'm not trying to catch you out if you didn't, that New Zealand was the first place in the world to adopt standard time, adopting Greenwich Mean Time as our base measure before even England did. It's a great story of parochialism and vision all at once, and we were a staggering 15 years ahead of anyone else. The 150th anniversary of that also passed this year. So, to chat time, measure, and the nature of reality, we're joined on the pod by Fleur Francois, Director of New Zealand's National Metrology Institute, the Measurement Standards Laboratory, and Karen Shearer of Callaghan Innovation. G'day, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, yeah, big big year in the um, in the world of, of measurements. And um, tell us a little bit, Fleur, about what it is that the MSL does, the um, Measurement Standards Laboratory. We're responsible for maintaining New Zealand's measurement system, and that's the measurement system that we rely on for trade and also for a lot of our basic technology to work. We have about 35 physicists and engineers based in Lower Hutt as part of Callaghan Innovation. And, and what do you what, what do 35 physicists and engineers to kind of measure and keep track of time well, they, and, and, and measures and weights and standards? Well, what they do is they maintain what we call the primary standards. So all measurements are traced back to a primary standard, whether it's the kilogram, the second, the ampere for electricity or the Kelvin for temperature. Uh, so they perform very complex physics experiments in the lab to maintain those standards um, and make services available to people, which I can tell you a little bit more about. What kind of, why would they have to continually be um, doing experiments to keep kind of proving and checking uh, the, these measures? 
Because metrologists don't take anything for granted. You always have to prove it. And you um, constantly need to provide evidence that something is what you say it is. Uh, the other thing, too, is the um, pace of technological change and measurement is rapidly um, changing. So it's not just about finding more and more accurate measurements that will enable us to explore the universe, uh, but it's also about coming up with new ways of measuring things so that we can invent and create um, exciting new products. And so do people, are there kind of, you know, these laboratories all around the world where people are replicating the same experiments to make sure that things are all based off the same um, time uh, or the same measurements or the same understanding? Yeah. Yeah, and time is actually a great example of where you need everybody in the world using the same system because global time has to be synchronised. Uh, so the way we measure time in New Zealand has to be the same as the way we measure time in, in London. Um, and all the digital transactions and the internet rely on that synchronised timing, um, including things like uh, GPS. I don't know if I'd ever really... Th- thought about it but I guess if I had thought about it I might have thought that there was one place somewhere where all of this information was kind of transmitted out from it like one source of truth why test the same things all around the world in different places what happens is the way that we measure time for example is we measure the transition of a cesium atom and that's how we calculate a second but no two cesium Um, atom clocks are exactly the same and so we have to correct for that Um, and so we send our data to a central place in Paris and it averages all of the data from all of the national labs around the world and then it tells us what the global time is and then how far out we are and then we all synchronise our clocks to that. How regularly does that happen? Continuously. So we're continuously um, measuring time at Gracefield, Callaghan, and uh, we're continuously sending that data to Paris and they're doing the calculations and the information is, is coming back to us. There's actually a really cool example of um, recently, you know, when we mm. added a, a, a global leap second to mm. the time system, just as a really good example of just how important time is to, to our everyday lives. All the, all the planes that would normally be, you know, flying around the planet um, actually were held up while we added the second because that's how important <laughs> one second is to the whole global airline system. It's amazing. That, that's remarkable. This idea that constantly the whole world is doing basically a very high-tech version of like at the beginning of a game where everyone goes, okay, synchronise your watches and we'll meet back in 15 minutes. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it really does matter, like um, Karen says, because if you think about things like high-frequency financial trading, you've got to be able to timestamp uh, the trades to make sure that there are no errors and, you know, a millisecond error can translate into millions of dollars of losses in company stock if you get it wrong. And how about things like um, calibration is a big part of what what the operation does, doesn't it, for companies doing things? Like, what what kind of things need to be that finely calibrated? Okay, so... um, You'd be amazed. I I mean, when I joined Callaghan Innovation, I was just stunned (laughs) to learn how many things actually depend on it. It's incredible. Yeah, like aviation, for example. Yeah. A lot of people don't realise how much measurement uh, goes into making sure that your Air New Zealand plane flies safely and doesn't come apart mid-flight. It's very um, reassuring to hear that all of this is going on in the background. With it. Well, what about yeah, GPS? Absolutely. 
So GPS uh, relies on really accurate timing. And so one of the exciting things about how technology development and measurement translates into to new applications is the development of GPS. So that was based on more accurate timing created by the invention of the atomic clock. What that means in practice is if for any reason the um, synchronisation of the timing um, goes out, um, even by you know a few milliseconds, that can translate into kilometres of um, inaccuracy in terms of the positioning of those satellites. Is that the same atomic clock that's used to work out the second, or is it a different kind of atomic clock? Uh, it, the technology is essentially the same. So there are atomic clocks on satellites. Does this, you know, does this kind of surprise? Um, I, I guess at parties, people are like, "What do you do?" And you're yeah. like, "Well, you know, time." And you're like, "Yeah,", yeah. and you're like, <laughs> "Make sure that it's right." And and it's all such a construct. Yet it's also important. Like, and it's constructed out of a whole series of. You know, it seems quite arbitrary and unusual kind of um, experiments. It's, I think it is really something that captures people's imagination. So people are blown away when I say, oh, yeah, there's a guy that works for me who's the Time Lord and he is in charge of official time. <laughs> and then people usually ask me, oh, well, can you change the time and give me an extra hour in the day or something else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the kind of... We take, like, just as, you know, lay people, all of this stuff are granted or, or you know, very much kind of as a as expected that, that time is a constant or weight is a constant or measurement is. Mm. But is it, like, quite a contested area? Like, are people, are there different schools of thought on it or are there competing ways to measure it? Or I think we're quite fortunate in that um, globally, all the countries have agreed that this is how we're going to have a measurement system because otherwise we wouldn't be able to trade and otherwise, you know, the, just the technology wouldn't work. And um, the way that we do that is New Zealand is a signatory to the Meter Convention uh, and we meet every few years and we uh, discuss the global measurement system and um, make decisions about any changes. And we take that to be, especially in a you know non-imperial um, measurement system place, we're, we're kind of like you know a little bit kind of mm -hmm. proud of our um, meters. You know, it makes so much sense. It's based on a hundred of this, and then it breaks down to ten, and it breaks down to one. But even the meter is wildly arbitrary, isn't it? As a as a the the first measure of it. Well, originally, when they developed the meter during the French Revolution, they um, based it on a fraction of distance across the earth, which was completely unpractical. Then they decided that they were going to make this metal bar that would be the reference. Um, but now, actually, we measure the um, meter using lasers, and it's based on a scientific equation using the speed of light. So incredibly accurate, incredibly stable, can be replicated anywhere in the universe. But it's, it's probably a testament, really, to how important measurement is, and the fact that you know we all know that America likes to be a bit different to the rest of the world, and is, is you know still holding out with imperial measurements. But in fact, and you know, in the scientific community, fleur, don't they? They yeah, uh, it, the, the the opposite is in fact the case because you you need to have those sort of universal systems, and and that just to enable you to do sort of scientific development. And, and the yeah. meters change was kind of big news a little while ago, and this mm. year it's been the path of the kilogram. So t talk us through how that goes and how that impacts, you know, an agency in Lower Hutt. 
you know, from from kind of Paris Paris to Lower Hutt, there's changes happening all around the world. Okay, well, this is the really crazy thing. So, so much of our measurement system and our technology relies on this lump of metal in a vault in Paris, you know, which is over a hundred years old, and there's only one of this thing. Um, which is called the International Prototype Kilogram, or uh, Le Grand Quai. And, I mean, if anything was to happen to this thing, you know, we'd lose the definition of mass in the universe. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Uh, the other thing, too, is we know that this um, this object is not stable. Um, it could be gaining or losing mass, depending on what you do. Um, if you bring it out of its little vault and you give it a clean, you could be taking atoms off it. Um, if God forbid anybody touched it, um, you'd be putting atoms on it and you'd automatically make the standard heavier and we'd all lose weight overnight. Um, so it's not a, it's not a sort of a stable way to, um, to measure mass or to, um, be used as a, a source for technology development. But, but, but up until now, have they, in a, a quite literal sense, been getting it out of the vault every couple of years, chucking it on the scales, and then going, <laughs> that's that's a kilogram, and then everyone's kilogram measures are updated all around the world for things like, you know, um, kilograms of pressure and spaceships and stuff. Yeah, so the at a very high level, conceptually that's right, but because this thing is so precious, and by precious I mean... There are three keys held by different people and they all have to come in and open it in the vault and they've only taken it out, I think, three or four times since it went in the vault. But like the recipe for Coke, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's, it's crazy. So what they have is they have six official copies and what, what used to happen was for New Zealand, we would send our standard kilogram to Paris to be compared to one of these official standard copies and then we would apply a correction factor to our kilogram and then when other um, people in New Zealand would send us their stuff to be calibrated, we would then compare it to our standard. And and, and make a an absolutely minute correction and then you'd say to someone, okay, your your kilogram is, is a kilogram and give them a kind of official tick. Yeah, and I guess where this matters um, because honestly, you know, you don't have to worry about the weight of your bananas at the supermarket. I don't think anybody's being, you know, shortchanged there. But where it does matter is when you're using that as a basis to measure mass at very small amounts. So if you think of things like the manufacture of pharmaceutical drugs, where you're wanting to measure very small quantities of active ingredients, you can see how using this sort of system is, is not really, um, you know, the, the best way of doing it. And so, I mean, were you surprised to find out just how kind of like analog and um, and and yeah, like you kind of I don't know, you kind of expect things to be a little bit more set than that. Yeah, so I can give you a little bit of uh, context as to why it's taken so long to fix this. Why you know Le Grand K is the last artifact, and it's because the way to calculate the kilogram using the laws of physics you need to um, know what Planck's constant is. Which and, sounds, um, this yeah. is my mum joke here, sounds a bit like something Max Key was doing on the internet a few years ago, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that's my contribution. Continue, Fleur. <laughs> so measuring um, Planck's constant has... <laughs> I'm now just gonna, I'm sorry. I've now got, I'm an, sorry. I've got I've, an image. I've like. ruined that now, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Measuring Planck's constant has actually been one of the hardest scientific experiments to do in the world. It's taken decades. And I actually heard a Nobel Prize winner at the meeting in Paris say that it is one of the five hardest scientific experiments to do in the world. It's up there with the um, the Hadron Collider and the the, Biggs, um, the Higgs boson. Um, it's that difficult, and so it's taken um, it's taken hundreds of person years and to be able to develop the technology to be able to measure Planck's constant. What is Planck's constant? And, and why does it relate to finding a standardised way for anyone in the world to be able to replicate it to then go, yes, that is the mass of a kilogram? Planck's constant is the energy in one photon of electromagnetic radiation uh, to the frequency of that radiation. So it's a, it's a value um, in the natural world uh, which is inherently stable. It's part of the, the laws of physics, and it can be um, can be tested anywhere in the universe. So essentially, uh, Planck's constant is a value that we plug into a scientific equation in order to be able to calculate a kilogram. So we can then build machines and devices that use Planck's constant that will then tell us what a kilogram is. It does seem remarkably complicated, doesn't it, from kind of the simplicity of like a, a lump of metal to um, yeah, uh, interrelationships between frequencies and radiation uh, at, at an atomic level. It's a lot more stable and a lot more safer for the world than relying on yeah some some dodgy dodgy object in a vault that could be destroyed. And this is not hypothetical. Uh, in the 19th century, um, the poor British, they lost their um, standard yard because there was a fire in Parliament where it was stored. And I have visions of it just being this, you know, melted lump of metal. And you've just uh, recently been over to Paris where all of this has been kind of um, going down. What, what was done to mark the end of um, the analogue era with this? And, I mean, is this an unusually big year in the um, the world of metrology, the, the world of measuring things? It is a big year for metrologists, essentially because we have cracked the um, the last the last bastion of, of having to use a physical object to get a measurement. Uh, we've finally reached the point where there are enough experiments that have been done around the world that we can set a value for Planck's constant. Also, at the same time, we have um, moved from the analogue world to the more digital world for other measurements, like the Kelvin and temperature. Uh, that will be based on another um physical constant called Boltzmann's constant. And we've also uh, fixed the um, the value for the elementary charge, which is used to calculate the ampere, which is critical for electricity. And the reason this matters is this new um, technology is going to enable a whole lot of other technology developments, whether it's more... Um, accurate predictions about climate change from the improved temperature measurement through to uh, better electronic devices and longer-lasting batteries through better electricity measurement. What did they do for heat prior to this, for the, the Kelvin, the, the measure of temperature? I was worried you were going to ask me this <laughs> because 
I'm not a physicist, Simon. Yes. Um, I have to admit, I'm a biochemist. <laughs> but the um, essentially the object that they use to calculate the Kelvin is something called the triple point of water. And the triple point of water is the temperature at which water exists in its three states. So that's as, you know, um, a solid, a liquid and a gas in perfect equilibrium. And that uh, translates to... Um, I think 273.1 Kelvin. My, my, my 15-year-old has just discovered this and was gleefully regaling me the other day of trying to explain to me how water could actually exist in three different <laughs> forms. I have to admit, it did take him about 10 minutes to explain it to me to, yeah. for me to fully understand. It's really cool. It is, it is remarkable, yeah. and I do apologise to any science-minded people mm. that even that my, the characterisation of my questions must have been causing people difficulties swapping in mass and weight and all kinds of things but um you know it, it really rubs in the fact that you know if we were dropped on a, um, a desert island or you know 400 years back in history and people were like well how did you do things so many people just would not be able to help at all you know there's so much of what we do in our daily life that we just kind of take all of the the base levels um for granted and and i wonder um another another area like this year like in in uh anniversary news the 150 year anniversary of standard time and that's remarkable um to think that New Zealand was the first place in the world to adopt standard time. And it was so recent, you know, really, like 150 years ago, the idea that everywhere around New Zealand before that, every kind of centre kept its own time and they were different and proudly different. Yeah, well, Invercargill at one point was you know, 20 minutes ahead of Wellington. <laughs> it's just, just because nobody had you know any accurate way of, of um, they you know, all their clocks were mechanical and, and differed in different ways to <laughs> What was it based on? Like, were, they, were they trying to be standard at some point or was it kind of based on when the sun came up or what, what was time in each of these areas based on before it became standard? Clocks were actually synchronised on the basis of, you know, the movement of the sun. And so when you think about the geography of New Zealand, mm. the sun rises a lot earlier at one end of the country than it does in the other. And that's why there were different time zones with different minutes. And because there wasn't a lot of communication in real time across the country, nobody really knew that they were like 20 minutes ahead of Invercargill. And would the town clock be kind of a very localised version of like the Paris uh, clock today where the town clock in the centre of, of Oamaru might have a time and then everyone who had a watch would go, oh, yep, my, my time is right to the clock and then they'd tell other people around them what the time was and then they'd all have to recalibrate? That's exactly it. Whoever controlled the town clock controlled the town's time and everybody else had to had to match their watches to that. And why did people have to change 150 years ago and, and and like yeah like what what was the point of contention about um about changing well it's really funny when you think about 150 years ago but it was a for new zealand the country was rapidly growing and there was a rapid pace of technological change the advent of the railway and the telegraph uh, essentially connected parts of new zealand that weren't connected to each other previously and so what happened was there was a lot of frustration because people would try and send a telegraph from one end to the other of the country, but 
it, it wouldn't get through properly because the offices were opening and shutting at different times. Oh yeah, oh, I'm going to get this off before the day closes. It's five. It's four fifty-five, <laughs> and then the place has been closed for twenty minutes down in Invercargill. Yeah, and you can imagine trying to like synchronise your railway timetables, and it all came to a head. Um, over 150 years ago when they laid a cable between the North and South Island because that just made the situation even worse. So the Central Telegraph office in Wellington said, right, this is enough. Um, New Zealand time is based on the time at the Wellington Telegraph office and all your other telegraph offices around New Zealand, you have to synchronise your clocks to this time. And yeah, chaos broke out because... There was no way the South Island was living under Wellington time. Particularly when you um, consider that at that time of um, our history, over two-thirds of the population lived in the South Island. Yeah, and, and Dunedin was the centre of wealth and power. Ot- Otago, rather, was yes. the centre of wealth and power. Which, you know, you can tell as you walk around now and you go, wow, this is kind of, it's beautiful, but um, no longer feels the centre of power. Yeah, although the way things are going, I think they're trying pretty hard to reclaim that. <laughs> um, and and that, that idea of um, not being able to settle on one local time frame sent people to Greenwich in England. Well, there was an idea to set it on some sort of reference point, and I can't remember exactly, I think, the exact... Um, the difference between New Zealand Standard Time and Greenwich. I think it's something about 11 hours and 30 minutes. Uh, But essentially what happened was there was a a debate in Parliament um, after the Wellington Telegraph office did what they did. And in the end, a compromise was reached and they based it on um, solar time in Canterbury, which everybody was prepared to, to go with. It seems so remarkable to me that, like, if this was an issue in New Zealand that, you know, 150 years ago was reasonably lowly populated and didn't have an enormous amount of um, interprovincial kind of stuff going on, you'd think somewhere like, I don't know, France or Germany that had, you, you know, millions of people all doing cross-border and cross-county um, trade and all must have had huge needs for time. But, but even so... New Zealand was 15 years ahead of anywhere else to adopt yeah. a standardised time, let alone for a whole continent to adopt a standardised idea of time. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what was happening in those other countries at the time, but I get the impression that we just seem to be able to get stuff done faster. Yeah. Which has been a you know constant in our entire history. I mean, you know, we've had so many firsts. I mean, you know, look at the giving women the vote and, I mean, all sorts of things. I think, you know, that's where our size actually really does help. We just get stuff done. Absolute shambles it must have been. I wonder if in 150 years from now people will be looking back and they'll go, do you know it was 150 years ago, they had a lump of metal and that's how they measured maths. And I wonder if it'll be the same. same And how has this been marked around the country, this idea of us being um, the first in the world to hit standard time? We had a celebration very recently uh, where we uh, had some interesting speakers at the National Library who shared a bit of the history and uh, we had an exhibit where we showed a lot of the history of timekeeping in New Zealand. But actually, yeah, it's one of those little known historical um, facts about us. Yeah, there's actually, um, if, if anyone's you know interested to learn more about this, there's actually a really cool article on the spin-off that's actually mm. details some of the really cool stories around 
around this, like, you know, the fact that we used to fly the atomic clock, you know, first class around the world to match it up with other atomic clocks. And I mean, there's some really, uh, really cool anecdotes that how people did, can read for themselves. How did that work? Yeah. Like, pe- like, like an actual physical clock. Would an actual go off. physical clock would sit in first class with its own. It was Mr. C. Beam, I think, was the name, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we couldn't put yeah. atomic on the manifest. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make jokes about bombs and you can't call things atomic. There's, a, there's actually a photo of it on the, on the spin off website. If you look it up, strapped in with its seatbelt, it's hilarious. And, yeah. then it would, and then it would come back and that would be, that would be time here. Yeah, remarkable. And so. Where's the technology going? So that, you know, we laugh back at that in the 70s. Ha, ha, ha. But, you know, things are moving so much faster. Now, what, what does this um, enable? What, you know, what does having a, a measurement lab enable us to do here? And um, there's actually kind of local innovations in that space. Hey, so we've got our own version of the um, uh, measurement equipment that allows you to do what is it? A, a kind of quick and dirty version of the um, yeah of the meter. I mean, speak, measurement. speaking of getting stuff done, I mean, it's another really cool Kiwi innovation. There's a there's a scientist in Wellington, um, Dr. Chris Sutton, who's actually um, he's won international awards for this. In fact, he was he was nominated this year, I um, think, for the you know Wellingtonian of the year. Uh, he's a really clever uh, metrologist, and he's helped develop this uh, tool that's known as the kibble balance but he's basically developed a desktop version of something that's you know everyone else's looks like the old you know IBM computers of old um, and he's developed this really sort of miniaturized version um, it's the you know only only one in the world at this point um, and we have the only kibble balance in the southern hemisphere so um, you know that's an, an, a classic example of actually how New Zealand can really lead the world in this stuff that's that's such a yeah such an elegant solution to what I imagine you can't just kind of that easily spin up a, um, a measurement that complicated. Yeah, so Chris was very um, forward thinking. So he just, he realised um, about 10 years ago that this was the way that the measurement world was going. And he looked at the kibble balances that have been built in the Northern Hemisphere, which are huge and cost millions um, and are incredibly accurate because they had to be used to calculate Planck's constant. And he thought, well, okay, New Zealand, that's not going to happen here. But... We are going to need access to really high accuracy measurements of the kilogram once the global system changes. And so he developed his own version of those super engineered kibble balances for us to be able to calculate the kilogram. He essentially saw a world where we will democratise the kilogram. It won't be um, something that only you know PhD physicists in a national lab can do. It's something that we can actually... Um, make available to the broader industrial community. I mean, there might be a world in the future where a lot of manufacturing operations have their own kibble balance, particularly if you're manufacturing, say, pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I don't know if, if I would have thought about it, but I guess I would have thought a lot, a lot of this stuff would have been done by mathematical equation rather than based off kind of basic, basic laws of uh, standard measures in physics, like, you know, laws of immutable laws of nature. Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, there's just so much of industry is is tied up with things like temperature and pressure and measurement. I mean, you know, the electricity industry, you know, the aviation industry, pharmaceuticals. You know, there's, it's actually a really fundamental part of yeah, manufacturing that most of us obviously never think about. But once you actually look into it and you realise how incredibly important it is. Yeah, there are some really practical applications. So as well as doing, you know, cutting edge 
physics, we make that available to industry in New Zealand. So quite often a company will have um, a particular production issue and many times the issue is related to measurement. So just to give you an example, we've done a lot of work uh, in the petroleum industry and also um, industrial processes like methanol production in Taranaki where they um, have very high temperature furnaces to um, to manufacture their products. And temperature control and measurement is absolutely critical to their operation. If they run the temperature too hot, you could have a meltdown in your factory. But if you don't run the temperature hot enough, you don't get um, a very good yield. And we did some work with an operation in Taranaki where we were actually able to show them how to optimise the temperature control in their furnace and it translated into over a million dollars of um, operating um, savings a year. Uh, so measurement really does matter if you uh, want to be able to um, manufacture things more efficiently. That's so cool. And yes, as a final thought there, like how do people get involved with the MSL? How do people um, come and avail themselves of the 35 uh, amazing scientists, physicists, technicians uh, in the laboratory? We are open to any um, inquiries uh, from businesses out there. Uh, we can be reached at measurement.govt.nz. They have a fantastic website, actually, that's got um, a lot of really cool stories about, about the work they do. Ah, cool. And, and are you able to kind of like wander and um, come visit and, and see kind of our measures? <laughs> is that, is that, is that like there's, a, a, there's a lot of building work going on at the moment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we periodically do actually open up our labs and bring people around um, because people are really fascinated by this stuff and we get to do some really cool variable stuff. I mean, for me, it's amazing that we do everything from working with the aviation industry through to working with digital effects industry and um, yeah, I mean, I never know like what weird and wonderful things my staff are going to be testing in the lab. I mean, I remember one day I just about tripped over a set of traffic lights in the um, corridor because our light measurement lab was testing all these traffic lights to make sure they met the standard. Ah, that's so cool. Thank you for coming and sharing uh, the story today. Uh, that's Fleur Francois, who's the director at the Measurement Standards Laboratory and to Karen Chera Communications at Callahan. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks. And thank you to Tina Tiller for producing, and thank you for listening. If you would like to find more, head along to measurement.govt.nz. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today.
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.